You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Well, we've got a uh, special treat this evening, a little bit of a surprise, kind of a last-minute decision uh, here. I found out that uh, Brother Corey Estep and Sierra were going to be in town uh, this week, and uh, I actually then, uh, once I found that out, I asked if he would be willing to uh, record and preach at the Sunday night service. And for some of you who may be a little confused about how all this works, uh, the, the pattern that we have followed to this point is that we would record the Sunday services on Friday afternoons so that we could post them. And since we're still doing our online services Sundays and evening and Wednesday evenings, I should say, uh, Brother Corey was in town uh, this week for uh, Josh and Mallory's wedding. So uh, I said, well, on Friday you can record the Sunday night service. It gets a little confusing. Uh, hopefully we remember uh, you know, what we're doing here, but uh, I'm thankful for his willingness to uh, be willing to preach, and for and many of you know Corey and Sierra, they were here uh, before I was here, they were here for about four years, and uh, was, he was the assistant pastor, worked with the, the youth, and, and uh, no, developed a lot of good friendships here at Eastside Baptist Church, and so uh, I, don't, I don't think they need much of an introduction, but I, but I did want to just mention I'm thankful for the work that he's put in here and for the investment he's made at Eastside Baptist Church. And I always want to try to keep a connection to those that have come through here and, uh, and, and just try to maintain that friendship. And I'm grateful for his willingness to preach. He's down in Pittsburgh, Kansas, and been there for a little over a year. He, he went there a little bit before I came here to Eastside. And I'm grateful to hear uh, how God's working there. He's going to give a short report about that as well, just to let us know how things are going. And uh, then he'll get into the message. So, Brother Corey, you come on in. All right. Thank you, Pastor Jet. And I do appreciate the opportunity to be able to preach here. Uh, It is a unique circumstance. It is a unique situation. Uh, But I'm thankful that we have technology and tools like this to be able to accommodate something like COVID-19 and the very unique, historically speaking, unique situation that we have. Uh, I appreciate this. I, I call it a special treat to be able to get the call from Pastor Jet. I love Eastside Baptist Church, and I know that enough time has passed now that uh, I don't know all the newcomers that have been here, and I may be a new face to you, but I I love you all just as much, and uh, this is a a church, a body of believers, a local church here, and I am eight years ago, I can't believe it's been eight years ago, uh, you all accepted my wife and I in as family, and that will forever mean the world to us, and um, I was reminiscing a little bit, Sierra and I were talking about uh, coming here, and I, I cringe a couple of times, some of the things that I remember, and just growing up, you, you make mistakes, you do some things, that, but growth is kind of defined by a series of discomforts with the right response after it. You respond correctly after a, a cringe moment, you may call it that, and uh, I have a couple of those, we all have a couple of those, but all in all, I am so grateful for this opportunity, the opportunity that I had to be here at Eastside Baptist Church, and I'm so thankful for your patience, even as I did have so much to learn, starting out as a 23-year-old, and I, as many of you would still say that I am still just a whippersnapper, just a young guy, and, and I'll take that as long as I can get it. 
I'm thankful, too, for Pastor Spencer and Mrs. Yvette and what precious friends that they are to me and I know to many here at Eastside Baptist Church. And now to see the Jets come in and to just step right into the role. And it's so exciting to see what the future holds for Eastside Baptist Church and for Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And uh, just a quick update about Liberty Baptist Church in Pittsburgh. It was mentioned, celebrated one year back in February. It seemed to just come and go, and we didn't even realize we'd been there a year. It, it goes by so quickly. Our first Sunday that we were there, we had four in attendance there, and it was, it was a unique situation, just having four people there, something to get used to. Uh, but God has blessed, and God has grown the church. We've had quite a few join, and quite a few uh, come and visit, and continue to visit and two weeks before the COVID-19 measures were put in place, we had 29 in a service, and it was tightly packed in that little auditorium. And so we're already looking at the next phase of being able to bust out a wall and expand the auditorium a little bit. Recently, it was the week before COVID-19 measures were put in place when we went to live stream. The week before that, we had one saved. And we have three families that are waiting to join. We have four individuals waiting to be baptized. It's just super exciting. So I've been chomping at the bit to get back together. And we just step back and we watch God do some incredible things at Liberty Baptist Church in Pittsburgh, Kansas. Our motto, or our mission statement, if you will, is loving God and serving him by serving others and loving them. And that's what we've tried to do. And God has been blessing that. Um, and it may seem like, uh, to trip up some things, uh, the COVID-19 measures, but God still has everything under control. And he's still, God doesn't step back and say, what, a virus? And take him by surprise, that never happens with God. And he is, he is in control, he's got this taken care of, and so it would behoove us to have peace about that. And um, in Kansas, we are able to assemble again, so slowly but surely, and with God's wisdom, and we're moving towards getting back to some sense of normalcy. We had 16, actually, in the Sunday morning service this past Sunday, and that would have been a good number for us um, even before COVID-19 hit. So we appreciate your prayers as we move forward. Uh, many of you know Avery Shirley is going to be coming this summer and helping out by way of an internship. That's going to be a huge help, and we're eager to get him there and get him started at the beginning of June. Uh, pray for us that God would send us um, a family or send us somebody who would be uh, able to be able to help with the outreach towards the college students. And uh, we're going to re reach out to those college students in Pitt, at Pitt State University, regardless of uh, who's there or who comes. But um, we really are praying about God to send us somebody to be a help to the ministry. And so that's something you can pray for us about and that God would continue to save souls there in Pittsburgh, Kansas. Thank you all for your prayers about that too. Well, if you turn to Mark chapter number 12, Mark chapter 12, while you're turning there, I just want to pray and we'll get into the sermon this morning. Heavenly Father, I want to say thank you so much for uh, this opportunity that you've given to be able to preach and to be able to open your word. And Father, this is something that is, uh, I believe, very applicable to even the time frame that we find ourselves in. And God, as I just said, nothing takes you by surprise. You have everything under control, and we are going to trust you with that. And Father, I pray that you give peace and you give receptiveness to the hearers this morning. Help us to purpose in our hearts right now that we would be 
hearers of the word and also doers of the word and not just take in information, but do with it what your Holy Spirit would lead us to do with it. And that's to grow and that's to act. We come together not to just huddle together and be around people that are like us. That's part of it. We come together to go out and to reach lost souls. I pray that that would be the end product of this and the result. I pray that Sioux Falls, South Dakota would be reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ because of East Side Baptist Church. I'm thankful for this church. Give us, illuminate the truths of your word to us this morning, we, or this evening. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at Liberty Baptist Church, we've been going through the gospel of Mark on Sunday mornings, and the series titled it Following Jesus, and the world today is really all about leadership. That's not, a, that's not something that is foreign to us. Just go to any uh, section, book section in any store or go to Barnes & Noble, a bookstore, and look. There are aisles and aisles of leadership books. And Jesus, in the Gospels, he modeled leadership, didn't he? He modeled leadership, but it was so counter-cultural to the Roman and to the Jewish uh, people there in the Jewish world, in the Roman world. They considered the type of leadership that Jesus preached about to be really almost offensive. And really, Jesus, too, to American culture today, American leadership as it's defined, Jesus would have been very countercultural to that, too. His definition of greatness gave us a clue to that. Jesus taught that leadership, Jesus taught that effectiveness and greatness, if you will, true greatness. It doesn't aim for the top. It doesn't climb the ladder. It doesn't climb over people. It stoops low. It serves. To lead, you have to serve. To lead, you must learn to follow. Humility. You see that all throughout. It saturates scripture. Humility does. There's a drought of humility, isn't there? I'm not talking just about in the world today. I'm talking about right here in my own heart and in my own life. And if you're human and you're watching this, that's you too. Humility is not a natural thing to us. But yet Jesus knew that and he pushed it. He pushed pushed it into his disciples' lives and he taught it, regardless of how uncomfortable it may have been to hear some of the things that he taught. Now the passage I'm about to read here, I want to give some context before we just flow right into it. Jesus is in Jerusalem He's entering into Jerusalem to, uh, really it's his final week before the crucifixion. And this is these last few days of Jesus leading up to the arrest and the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus are all really, really tense. And a lot of what happens here in the Gospel of Mark, it's all centered around this single topic in chapters 11 and down through chapters 12. There are six conflicts conflict encounters between Jesus and the religious leaders there in the temple. The first conflict happened. The the religious leaders came up. This is the day right after Jesus had gone in and flipped the the temple tables and he had uh, driven out those sellers and those buyers. And he, he was approached by the chief priests, the elders and the scribes that next morning. And they asked him, who gives you the right to do this? By what authority, by what power... Do you do these things? And these things wasn't just referring to flipping the tables in the temple. These things referred all the way back to as far as even casting out the devil in the, in the temple there, in the, in, the, uh, uh, in, the, yeah, in the temple and going in and healing the blind and healing the, 
the deaf and healing the lame. And there were rumors even that these scribes and these Pharisees had heard about him raising a dead man. I mean, these, these were just, these things en- encompassed a lot. So whenever they asked Jesus about by what authority, by what power he was doing these things, they were asking really a question that was challenging Jesus' position and who Jesus was. So by what authority do you do these things? And then Jesus went right into, I love what Jesus said there. He, he asks them a question. He says, well, you, I'll answer that question for you if you answer a question for me. By what authority, really, it was the idea, did John the Baptist come? Was he of men or was he of, from heaven? And that put, that put the spotlight right back on their hearts. Because for them to answer that question, they had to really, if they would have said, from men, then everyone around them who believed John the Baptist was a prophet, they would have been upset at those religious leaders. But if, he, if they would have said, well, from God, then Jesus would have had every right, and he still did ask this question, he would have had every right to say, well, then why don't you believe his message? And his message was, behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, pointing out Jesus. And we don't have time to go through all of these conflict accounts of Jesus going through, but Jesus was pointing his finger back into their life, though they were attempting to to trip him up. Jesus was pointing his finger right back at them and calling them out for their stubbornness and for their pride. The parable of the vineyard husbandmen there at the beginning of chapter number 12. Read that if you get a chance sometime about, just think about that concept of authority. People stepping into the realms of authority that they have no business being in to the degree where violence is involved And Jesus was really predicting his own future and predicting these men's own future, which would come and kill him. So that's where we pick up our reading, right after that parable of the vineyard. And these religious leaders, right after that, Jesus confronts them and they walk away. Now, their desire is to kill Jesus. I think that's pretty obvious to us because they wind up doing that by the end of that week. They wanted to kill him. But they couldn't yet do it because they still feared the people. So they needed to be creative about how they went about killing Jesus. So these religious leaders, when they walk away, they gather together and they send, they choose to send in the top minds of two religious groups, two specific groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians. So let's pick up the, the reading of this third of the six accounts, the conflict accounts surrounding authority. Chapter number 12, verse number 13 says this, And they send unto him certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians to catch him in his words. And when they were come, excuse me, and when they were come, they say unto him, Master, we know that thou art true and carest for no man, for thou regardest not the person of men, but teachest the way of God in truth. So now they come in with the question, is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Shall we give or shall we not give? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said unto them, Why tempt ye me? That is a significant question by Jesus because it really points out the the really vile nature of their attempt to trip Jesus up. That word tempt there, that's that's the second time that word is used in all of the Gospel of Mark to describe the first time that it was used was when Satan tempted Jesus in the desert. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be on that side of the word, using the word tempt. Having the word tempt, why tempt ye me? Having that question 
thrown my way, especially by the Son of God. Now look at Jesus' odd request. He says, bring me a penny that I may see it. Bring me a penny that I may see it. And they brought it. And he say, saith unto them, whose is this image and superscription? And they said unto him, Caesar's. And Jesus answering said unto them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. They marveled at him. It's the only time in all of Mark that the religious people are said to have marveled at Jesus and his words. Now, after walking away, defeated, those, those, this scheme continues. These high priests, the chief priests, the scribes and the elders, they, they were defeated. They tried to take Jesus down, but they couldn't do it. Jesus flipped it right back around to them. And so they send in these Pharisees and the Herodians. Verse 13 said, they sent unto him certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians. Now, if you're reading through this very quickly, you may not catch something about the Pharisees and the Herodians. If you know something about the Pharisees, you would know, and this terminology is just to kind of give an, an example of the contrast here. The Pharisees were as far right as you could be religiously, to the degree where they were making lists after list after list and expecting other people to follow it. And then the Herodians were kind of the carefree, they were the uh, ones that were drawn really more by money. They were dedicated to the Herodian dynasty, Herod Antipas, and they were seen as traitors to the, to the religious world, traitors to the Mosaic law. So these, they were as far left as you could get. So the, these Pharisees and these Herodians, they were generally enemies of each other. But they're seen here united against the common enemy. The old saying goes, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And this is one of those cases or teaming up against Jesus. So their common goal is to, the verse says, catch Jesus in his words, to catch him. Now that word, if you look it up in a Strong's Concordance, if you look up what the Greek word kind of means, uh, means it was used in hunting, in a hunting terminology, a violent trap was the idea. It wasn't a trap just to capture, it was a trap meant just to kill. So that's their goal. To get Jesus to say something that opposed the Roman leadership. To get the accusation of sedition against him. And that would bring the death sentence. They wanted the Roman Empire to come in and take care of their, their inconvenience. Verse 14 said, And when they were come, they say unto him, Master, we know that thou art true. Now, meaning this. You're a man of integrity. We, we know that you're a man of integrity. Now, did they truly believe that? No. You look back at their other inter, uh, interactions with Jesus. They didn't believe that Jesus was a man of integrity. Otherwise, they would have been following him. They, they continue here, the mushy-gushiness. Thou art true and carest for no man. Meaning, you don't let man's opinion sway you. Now, is that correct? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. They're right on so far. It's like their theology is perfect right now. But it's about to, it's about to flip on its head. They give these two reasons why they believe that. For thou regardest not the person of men. This was an idiom they were using. You don't show favoritism. You don't change just for the approval of men. But teach us the way of God in truth. That statement right there. If they believed that, they would be on their faces worshiping the Son of God. Not scheming to put him into a violent trap to kill him. 
You teach and you preach truth without holding back. You don't care what people think. You just want to say what your heavenly father has told you to say. That's pretty much what they're saying. But notice the difference between their words and their motives. Back in verse 13, their motives are to catch him in his words, to trap him, to violently kill him. But their words are saying, you're awesome, Jesus. You don't, you do not fall for flattery at all. But the irony of the case is they're trying to use irony to get their way, to flatter Jesus. Or they're trying to use flattery rather to catch Jesus. Now here comes the trap. The last part of verse 14 says, is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Shall we give or shall we not give? That question, if you don't know what the word tribute means, we are in the coming out of the month of April into May. We're actually in the middle of May now. Time flies. But last month it would have been had COVID-19 not hit and policies were changed. But tax day falls in the middle of that month, doesn't it? Tax day. It's everybody's favorite day, isn't it? Should we pay taxes? This is what they're talking about. Every year, Americans give tribute, their tribute, to the government. And that would be no different than what the question would be here that they're asking. Now, this tribute that they're talking about, for their culture, it specifically refers to poll tax. Now, I'm going to be giving you some history here throughout this sermon. And it's important to know a lot of this to be able to understand what this audience would have been hearing from Jesus and how their minds would have been working. So should we pay taxes? Should we pay poll tax? Now, Israel, when it came to, came to taxation, they were taxed on everything. We in the United States of America, we have, we have tax on income, we have tax on sales, we have tax on uh, property. The, the Israelites, the Israel people, people of Israel, they were taxed on everything to the degree that if you were a fisherman... If you had a boat in the dock, you had to pay a tax on the boat being docked there. If you went out onto the water, you had to pay a tax before you went out on the water. If you came back with fish, you had to be taxed on the fish you caught, the types of fish that were caught, the number of fish that you caught, and then you had to be taxed on the amount of time you spent out on the water. This is, I mean, we're talking about nickeling and diming them to death. And that's what the Roman Empire was really, really good at. They knew how to tax. So this was really heavy to them. Now, in, in AD 6, AD 6, Caesar Augustus implemented a poll tax or a head tax. This poll tax, if you lived in the Roman Empire, you had to pay your one denarius per year. A denarius was one day's wages, an ordinary day's wages. And this was a significant amount of money when you added it on to all of the other taxes that were already going to the Roman Empire. Now, if you read over in Acts 5 that even um, there's a high priest there of the Pharisees that even quotes this historical fact. In the year A.D. 6, a man by the name of Judas the Galilean led a revolt against poll tax. He that's what he was fighting against. And he was executed by the Roman Empire for sedition. Now in AD 66, a massive war broke out known as the Jewish War. It would lead to the destruction of the temple in AD 70 there in Jerusalem. And here's what that whole war started about. Poll tax. Do you think that this issue was a hot button issue of that day? 
It was about to explode into a war very soon. So they, they, these religious leaders come to Jesus. If Jesus would have said, yes, pay your taxes, the people, they thought, would have turned against him. The people would have turned on him. But if he would have said, no, don't pay your taxes, then it would have been Judas the Galilean all over again. Execution, sedition, and that's what they were hoping for. Second part of verse 15, last part of verse 15. But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said unto them, why tempt ye me? You're opposing the things of God, which puts you on the side of Satan. But he still decided to give them an answer. And I don't think it was as much he was giving them an answer as he was giving them a declaration of judgment here. Once we get to the end, you'll, you'll probably see what I mean by that. He still decided to give them that answer. He said, bring me a penny. And that would have been a denarius, specifically, that I may see it. Now, a little more history here. In AD 14, a man by the name of Tiberius rose to the throne of the Roman Empire. He would go on to, serve, to, to lead the Roman Empire until AD 37. Tiberius's empire was coming right after his father's empire, his leadership. And his father was Caesar Augustus. He happened to be the, uh, the emperor during Jesus' birth, Caesar Augustus was. Now Tiberius, the son was taking his place. Now the coinage that Jesus, the coin that Jesus was asking to see, here's what happened when a new emperor would come into power. When the new emperor would come into power, they would collect all of the coins in the, in the district or in the Roman Empire and they would stamp the, the bust, the head of the new emperor onto the, new, onto the old coins. And they would flip the coin and and re-stamp the back as well. So the coin that Jesus was asking for, <clears throat> excuse me, the coin that Jesus was asking for to see was a Tiberius denarius. It had an image of Tiberius on it. Now the, the coin itself is very telling. If you look up an image of a Tiberius denarius, actually when I was preaching this passage in our church, I wanted to get ahead and try to purchase a Tiberius denarius because some of the Roman currency you can find for fairly cheap. This one, however, has been made famous by this story in scripture. And so it, they're like $1,500 each. So I wouldn't recommend buying a coin with Tiberius's face on it. But on this coin, you can look up images of it. On the front is written, Tiberius, son of Augustus, the divine. Tiberius, son of Augustus, the divine. Meaning this, Tiberius, son of the divine God... Augustus, this is deeply problematic. Claiming that Caesar Augustus is God and that his son Tiberius, who's in power at this time, was therefore the son of God? You see the conflict here. You see how there's just an evil, an evil scheming that's taking place kind of in the background here. Yeah. Back of the coin itself, Lydia, the Tiberius' mother, Augustus' wife... It was an image of her on the back, and it said on that, Pontificus Maximus. You can look it up. It's a pagan term referring to pagan priests, which actually, uh, this is another uh, little fact, would go on to be the term used for the leader of the Roman Catholic Church. Pontificus Maximus, the Pope. Pagan term. So this coin, it was an abomination. It was an idol. It was a graven image. It's saying that someone else other than God Almighty was God. 
It's propaganda, being used as propaganda. I mean, there's a lot of issues with this. So the, the question was, should we, should we or shouldn't we pay taxes? Jesus says, bring me a penny, bring me a denarius. And they brought it. Verse 16, what are those words? And they brought it. Question, what is a graven image claiming that Caesar is God doing in the hands of religious leaders? In the temple of all places. They had Jewish currency. They couldn't use it as much as the Roman currency. It had more value. The Roman currency did. So look what Jesus does. Look at verse 16. So they brought it. And he saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? And they say unto him, Caesar's. Whose image is on the coin? Whose face is on the coin? Caesar's. Whose superscription or whose title is on the coin? Caesar's. Verse 17. And Jesus answering said unto them, Render, or the idea is give back. That's what the word means. Give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. If it has the image of Caesar on it, if it has Caesar's image on it, then it must belong to Caesar. So give it back to him. Now, we have to absolutely acknowledge. We have to see that Jesus is absolutely acknowledging that a Christian, uh, the responsibility of a Christian to pay their taxes to the divine institution of government, that is a requirement. That is something that Jesus is absolutely teaching here. Jesus said, render or give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Now, I don't want to spend too long here, but it would do us good to know what things we as Christians are instructed in the New Testament to give to the divine institution of government. And I'm not going to dabble here, and I'm not going to say things that, are clear, that aren't in Scripture, but there are some things, three clear things that I think we can see. If you were to turn over to Romans 13, it's probably a passage you've heard quoted a lot around this time and heard uh, mentioned a lot. And it, it, there's a reason for that, because it's very applicable. Romans 13, verse number one says, let every soul be subject to, or subject unto, or submit to is the idea. The higher powers. What are the higher powers that Paul is addressing here? Well, he's talking about government. He's talking about government. For there is no power, you know that word power? Exousia? It's the same exact question. It's the same exact term that was used to question by what authority, by what power, by what exousia do you do these things, Jesus? That's what the high priests were asking Jesus. Jesus says, or Paul says, there's no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Then he's talking about government. Verse 4 says of Romans 13, for he is the minister of God to thee for good. Servant of God. Minister of God. But what if I don't like him? That's a, that's a question that we hear a lot. What if I don't like that person who's been put there in that government leadership position? What if I don't like them? It doesn't matter. Paul talks about their duty to, uh, in the rest of the passage, their t- the duty of the government to protect and bring judgment upon, upon those who are doing wrong. If you do wrong, Jesus was, Paul rather, was saying this, be afraid. <laughs> Be afraid if you do wrong, if you break the law, because God has set these ministers of God in place to carry out judgment on those. Verse 6 of chapter thir- Romans 13 says, For this cause pay ye tribute. There's that word again. What's tribute? Taxes. For this cause pay ye tribute also. Here's why you should pay taxes. For they are God's ministers. 
You don't pay taxes because you like the person in leadership. You pay taxes because God told you to pay taxes. Attending continually upon this very thing. Render, verse 7, the first word in that verse. Render, therefore, to all their dues. It's almost like Paul is using terminology that's straight out of God's mouth. Because this is the exact terminology that Jesus uses over in Mark chapter number 12. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Paul says, render therefore to them all their dues. Tribute to whom tribute is due. Custom to whom custom is due. Or custom to whom custom is revenue. Fear to whom fear. Now this isn't like, ah, scared fear. This is like respect, reverence, fear. Honor to whom honor. Now you know what makes this passage significant? Of course, it's God's word. That makes it the most significant. But what makes it significant historically is that Paul was writing this to believers in Rome who, who at the time were under the thumb and leadership of the oppressor Nero. It was written by Paul who would be murdered, who would be executed, be martyred for his Christian faith in Rome Two Christians, many of whom that would read this, would wind up falling to the blade of Nero himself. Nero was a wicked man. He set fire to Rome and blamed it on the Christians. He fed Christians to lions for entertainment. He made Christians into human candles, lit them, and watched them slowly burn to death. Paul is saying Nero, not the man, but his position, is a position that deserves honor, respect, and even taxes. Obedience. So there are two things right there. What should a Christian, what does a Christian owe to the divine institution of government? Well, obedience and taxes. Then if you turn over, if you look over in 1 Timothy chapter number 2, let me just read the verses for you really quickly. I exhort therefore, this is Paul speaking, I, I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Pray for your government leaders. What makes this passage significant? Well, it was written during the reign of Nero also. What's the instruction given? Timothy, you need to pray for Nero. Not hate him. Not share mocking memes about him online. <laughs> Not make fun of him not curse him. Paul says pray for him. This is fascinating because I'm supposed to pray for my leaders. I'm supposed to pray for my government officials whether I like them or not. So let's zoom out for a second. The New Testament makes it pretty clear and that's, those are just three of many duties given to New Testament believers and how we should interact with authority in our lives. What do I owe to God-ordained authority like government. I owe obedience to my government. I owe taxes to my government. And I owe prayers for my government. Now, if I could just say one more thing about this. Two out of those three things, when it comes down to it, when you, when you look at your own heart and be honest about your own heart and your own life, two of these three things can be done whether I'm a Christian or I'm an atheist. When it comes to God-given responsibilities concerning government, American Christians and American atheists 
Sadly, we might just score the same. Two out of three. Most of us, if I ask the question in the last year, how many laws have you broken? Well, none. I haven't broken any. I hope not. Did you pay your taxes? Yep, sure did. Atheists do that. In the last 365 days, how many times have you gotten on your knees and prayed for your governor? How many times have you gotten on your knees and prayed for your president? How many times have you gotten on your knees and cried out to God and lifted the name of that politician, that leader, that authority that you don't really even like? Praying for your government, it does two things. It, it can change their hearts. But I think one of the pow- most powerful benefits that it has in praying for our leaders is that it can guard my heart against bitterness towards my leaders. It's difficult to be bitter towards someone you're praying for. So render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But the last bit of Jesus' powerful lesson here, we didn't even get to yet. And this is the most important. This is the focal point. This is everything that Jesus had said in this conversation up to this point has been leading up to this most important part. It's the whole reason Jesus even came to this earth. Verse 17, And Jesus answering said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. We talked about that. And to God... The things that are God's. Now back in verse number 16. Look at this. This is so good. Look at this. Stay with me. Verse number 16. Jesus asked an important qualifying question. He said, bring me a coin. Let me see the coin. And he said, what is, whose image is on the coin? Whose image? Whose likeness is on the coin? And they clearly said Caesar. Well, if Caesar's image is on the coin then it must belong to Caesar's. So give it back to Caesar. Implying this, ownership is determined by the image. Ownership is determined by the name inscribed upon it. I don't think I even need to remind us of Genesis 1.27 by now. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Now watch carefully. Jesus says, grab a coin, bring it to me. They bring him the coin. Whose image is on the coin? Well, Caesar's image is on the coin. Render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Give it back to him because it has his image on it. Next question is really implied. Jesus didn't even have to ask the question. For you, whose image is stamped into you? And these these studiers of the Old Testament would have been very aware of Genesis chapter 1. When God said, I have created man in my own image. God's image? Whose image is stamped into you? God's. Correct. You are made in God's image. And Jesus didn't even have to say it at this point. It was too clear. Then why don't you render, give back to Caesar, or give back to God what is already God's? In other words, let Caesar have his piece of metal. Because in the broad scheme of things, that is worthless compared to what God owns. So give God your life. Let Caesar have his little chunk of metal. Let him look at that and let it glisten, but let God have his, God, let God have what's rightfully his, and that's your life. You see why they marveled? Jesus was so clearly teaching this, this truth. Your life belongs to God because he made you. So give it back. 
If you're a child of God, not only did he create you, he also redeemed you. He bought you back from the slave market of sin. When his son Jesus Christ died on the cross to redeem you from your slave master sin. So now you belong to him once because you were created in in his image. So give it back to him. But also if you're a child of God, he bought you. He bought you. Jesus bought you with his own blood. He's redeemed you. You are his. So the message Jesus gives is, yes, give Caesar that which is Caesar's, but most important, give God what is his. And that's something these religious leaders were refusing to do. Give back that authority that you think that you have in this temple. Give back authority. Give God what is rightfully his. That's you. Every bit of you too. Every single bit of you. Verse 30, he would qualify that even further and define what he meant by that. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. What he was doing there is he was articulating this. Every little bit of your life ought to be owned by God. Not even the smallest bit of your life should be held back from his ownership. Now, God shouldn't be just invited into the churchy parts of your life. You know what I mean by that? The prayer and Bible reading and church attendance and big decisions when they come up. It seems like that's when we invite God into the ownership of our lives, right? It ought not be that case. It ought to be that he's every, in every part of our lives. There ought not be one little compartment of our lives that, we, that people look into and they're not able to find Jesus Christ dwelling there. Does God have ownership of every part of your life? If he did, you'd be faithful to church. Online for now. <laughs> but when, it, when the time comes and it's starting to get back to it, in person. If he did have full ownership, you'd be faithful to put others before yourself. Spouses, husbands, you'd be putting your wife before yourself. Wives, you'd be putting your husband before yourself. Parents, you'd be putting your children before yourself. Loving them. If God did have full ownership, maybe you would make it your mission to starve the criticism that exists in your heart. Not everything needs to be said. Not every opinion needs to be expressed. Encourage your pastor. If I can go that far even to say this, he and I haven't even talked about this, but I'm just sharing with you, we're even just discussing with other pastors and talking to them. Encourage your pastor during this time. He needs the encouragement. No one knows how to handle this COVID-19 dilemma because no one else has experienced COVID-19 up to this point. And to say that you know how, that you know how Eastside Baptist Church should be led through this time, can I tell you, you're out of your own jurisdiction. You're outside of your own authority that God has placed in your life. And I mean this with love. I, I hope you know my heart on this. God has not called you individuals to lead and feed the flock of Eastside Baptist Church. He's called Jason Jett to do that. And one of the ways that you prove that God has ownership of your life is you say, like Romans 13, verse number one, I didn't even get to the second part of it, the second part of the verse, there is no authority, there's no power but of God. And if you believe that, if that's your heart's anthem, if that's your heart's belief, if Pastor Jett is placed in this position by God, then you're gonna be at peace knowing that God is in control. And that helps us to lay down a lot of our opinions and a lot of our philosophies, doesn't it? You don't don't have to carry the weight of being the pastor 
of Eastside Baptist Church. Pray for your pastor. Pray for those who are in authority of your life. It's not just exclusive to the leadership of government. Listen, when God has complete ownership over your life, it's amazing what God can do through you. It's incredible. What could God do with Eastside Baptist Church? Truly, if you're, if you're honest and you're, you're really starting to think about what God could do with this church, it gets really exciting. It gets, look at the possibilities that are here. But catch this. When God doesn't have full ownership of your life individually, what is the church? It's made up of individual people. It's made up of individuals. Make up the body, the local church. When God doesn't have full ownership of your life, you might be faithful in some areas, but God will not use you to do what he could do through you. So the message this, this evening would be this. Jesus' message here was not pay taxes primarily. He was still teaching that. He was saying, give back to God what's already his. You're his. You're his. So let's pray. Let's take a few moments here in a time of invitation. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.